Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falcon, Slam for Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. That intro music was a blast from Film Fight Club's past for a very appropriate reason tonight. Yes, we when we started Film Fight Club, we had this wonderful intro music, but then Elton John came along and gave a, a us... A Wednesday-themed fighting track, so we had to use it. But back in the day, we were more closely associated with the Film Fight Club. And which is what we're talking about tonight. We've been touting it for a while. We've been talking about, you know, finally doing Fight Club because that's what the show is called. And finally, we know we're, we know we're breaking the rules. We're just going to get that out of the way. Yeah. But it's it's 1999, by the way. We, we've time-traveled once again. Yes, we've TARDIS. We're doing the big hits of 1999. We are covering F- Fight Club, the, n- the new David Fincher film uh, from the director of Seven and The Game and Alien 3. A lot of music videos, a lot of Aerosmith videos. That's right, and, and you know, a lot of Madonna videos. A lot of videos, full stop. Um, we're also covering the big return of Stanley Kubrick, Eyes Wide Shut, and also the follow-up to The Shawshank Redemption. By director Frank Darabont. Also adapted from a Stephen King story, The Green Mile. There are so many films we could have picked for a 1999 retrospective episode. It was an incredible year for Hollywood cinema. Um, oh, you yeah. Know, we could have done, like, Being John Malkovich. American done, Pie. Yeah, American Magnolia American Pie. comes out next week, That's 20 right. years ago. American Beauty. Galaxy um, Quest. Galaxy Quest. Three Kings. Um, uh, this time last week, 20 years ago, Toy Story 2 and The World is Not Enough came right, out at the same day. Right. The Iron Giant. Um, Office Space. There's a lot of movies that have cult followings that were, you know, released in 1999. You can go back to early 1999 episode where we did The Matrix and a couple of others from the time. The Chick Flicks, Cruel Intentions, and 10 Things I Hate About You. But today, we've picked three that hopefully we've got something cool to say about. Yeah, and it wasn't just an interesting time movie-wise. A lot was happening. We just had the... Failed referendum led by Malcolm Turnbull as opposed to Tony Abbott's monarchist movement to keep the status quo. Yeah, it's a, it's a shame. Helen Clark was just elected and, yeah, China just launched its first spacecraft. Mm. So a lot was going on in this time. Oh, and also, fun fact, around the Y2K time, all the CEOs of all the major airlines had to go on flights over midnight to show everyone that planes weren't going to crash. Oh, nice. <laughs> so they didn't get a spend time with the families. But no, uh, we are talking the movies of 1999, and we are talking Fight Club. It is starring Edward Norton, Brad Pitt, Helen Bottom Carter, Meatloaf, and a number of others. It is David Fincher's third feature, fourth feature film. Yep. Following a fantasy career, as I alluded to, as a music director, and it is about a office worker who is not happy with life and finds Tyler Durden, the guise of Brad Pitt, on a plane and soon in alleyways and all around the place, and they start a fight club with seven rules, which, yeah, you're not supposed to always talk about. It's funny just talking about this after we just rattled off a list of some of the other releases of 1999, and I mentioned, you mentioned The Matrix, and I mentioned Office Space. Why, and I would add to this series of films, American Beauty. For some reason, there are a whole bunch of movies about alienated, boring white guy office workers deciding to say F the system and smash things up in 1999. End of the millennium anxiety? I don't know. I'd argue Fight Club is a lot better than American Beauty. American Beauty oh, is dude, not aged American well Beauty is, is really bad. I think it's really funny. Exaggerated. How, it's yeah. pretentious. It's, yeah, it's self-aggrandizing. Yeah, exactly. It's bad in a lot of ways. I thought it, it's funny how there have been a lot of 20-year retrospective screenings of a bunch of different films at the you know your Chevelles and your Palaces and the, your Ritzes this year, but no one's showing American Beauty. But then again, maybe it's not so much that everyone's woken up to it being a terrible film and more about how 
Kevin Spacey as a guy lusting after teenagers maybe doesn't appeal so much in the current climate. It's just such a weirdly, softly, exoterical, exaggerated film, whereas Fight Club is more rooted in reality and not in all respects. We're going to talk about it in a moment. We should note that because, yes, we have taught us this is a spoilers episode. We'll be doing spoilers for Fight Club, The Green Mile, and Eyes Wide Shot. Eyes Wide Shot, that's right. Yeah, so um, Fight Club is very much of its time. The whole, as I was saying, you know, it, there seems to have been... Down with the system. That's right, a zeitgeist feeling of down with the system. But maybe the feeling in Fight Club that this anger has been boiling up and things really could change dates it in an interesting way because it's so pre-internet. It's like, oh man, if you know, you're complaining about the you know seeing ads everywhere now, if only you knew what was around the corner and the kind of corporate hellscape of resignation. You know, the internet is a place where everyone posts memes about how depressed and resigned they are to depressing realities. Yeah, this is a pre-meme movie. The ranting and the actually quite reasonable statements about alienation have taken on a whole new tone today and are still relevant, but don't have the same oomph given that we've gone so far beyond that. And But they, these people don't have the internet to reach out to seek support. My favorite sequence in the film is still the support group where he meets a Helen Bonham Carter character and they move between them yeah. and it's this weird... You're right. That is a fantastic scene. Um, it is. This is, uh, to name drop another Fincher film, yeah, a social network. But these days... Which people... is what someone, I think was a one major publication named that the film of the decade recently, the film that characterized the decade. Yeah, that that would be an interesting thing to get into in another episode. Yeah. In some ways, I think I agree. I don't, I don't disagree Fincher, strongly. He's, I guess, being a person from the world of advertising and music videos, he definitely has his finger on the zeitgeist, and he's very good at capturing the spirit of the moment. But you're completely right. These days, people who are lonely, like our unnamed narrator, who might be actually called Tyler Durden, <laughs> um, or Jack, <laughs> but um, yeah, he, he would... Be, probably be posting on Reddit, and he might actually just end up being an incel based on yeah. <laughs> some of the ways he treats Helena Bonham Carter in this movie. Yeah, speaking of Tyler Durden and Brad Pitt. And his whole, man, the system's screwing me over. You know what? I'm going to have my revenge. Honestly, I'm going to rant about The Last Jedi. <laughs> All right, I'm done. He would be ranting about The Last Jedi. He I would. just rewatched that this morning in preparation for our Star Wars coverage in coming weeks. We will be doing a lot of oh, intense Star Wars coverage. Obviously, 1999 was just another big year for... It Contra. was. Can you imagine going back then the and Phantom saying... Menace. I, can, I remember when it came out. Yeah. It was huge. But was anyway... <laughs> yeah, um, with Brad Pitt in this movie, it, with the exception of 12 Monkeys, to date, and I like his performance in Thelma Louise, to the time of the release, this was my favorite Brad Pitt performance, and possibly, in accepting still, 12 Monkeys still is, he's exceptional. In this. He's he's very good in this. Um, I find that Brad Pitt is a interesting actor because he has a lot of physical presence, but his style of acting is very blank. But sometimes that you can see great emotion underneath that. And sometimes, for me, it just comes across as blank. I feel that's more the relevant in the later David Fincher movie did The Case of Benjamin Button, right. which I didn't like at all. But the, No, I didn't either. But it was Forrest Gump 2, basically. Yeah. But this is one where the blankness is used to Pitt's advantage. It suits the character, who's this meant to be this, kind of this macho, cool cipher who represents everything that Edward Norton wishes he could be. I, it's a difficult film for me to get into at first because the, the moment you're talking about where he's sort of... Um, acting like a a 12-year-old with a crush around, um, who doesn't know how to express his emotions to Helena Bonham Carter. That is really the first moment in this film where I feel like some humanity is coming through because it's so slick in the visual approach and also in the rapid-fire, clever dialogue that it comes across kind of as smug. And I'm, I'm quite alienated when I watch this film um, before the plot really kicks in. To some extent, the film knows this and works around it 
because it turns out that Durden's philosophy, the film is smart enough to know, is really bunk um, and is quite empty. But I still find it, you know, like that what this movie is doing is rubbing me the wrong way. But I, once the film comes alive, it's so imaginative. Um, I disagree with that in a couple of respects. Yeah. I think there are a few really strong empathetic moments earlier in the film, certainly in some of the interactions between Edward Norton and Brad Pitt, where when Edward Norton is more aspirational and pathetic. Also, and I referred earlier to the support group sequences, the meatloaf moment is meatloaf parody is so jokes, good in this. But it's a genuinely caring moment, as are many yeah, yeah. surrounds. Oh, it's great. I think the film de- really, like I said, it, once the fight club is introduced, I think it really... Really oh, it's it so much better. And this film has, you know, this goes to Chuck Palahniuk. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, um, but giving him credit as well as Fincher for the the credit in in the images he comes up with. There's just imagination popping out of this film. The concept and the place it goes to is such a, a stretch from where it starts, yeah. but you go with it. The storytelling is good enough to sell you. And that's my favorite and least favorite thing about this film. I like the twist. I think it was well constituted. I remember watching it back in 1999. I didn't see it coming. And I think most people no, won't. Neither did, yeah. But I don't like the very end of this film. I, I feel I, it goes massively over the top. And you could argue whether it is realistic or a dream sequence. Really, there are varying interpretations. I have a view on this. But I do think regardless, it's such a massive tonal shift that the film doesn't justify or even is needed or necessary in any res- okay, real respect. Okay, well, spoiler alert, people who haven't watched Fight Club yep. yet. Talking earlier about how this is a pre-internet film, I love the naivety of the idea that we can blow up the credit card companies and then all the debt is gone. It's like, right. no, dude, that's on the internet. It's kind of on the level of what the Catwoman character in Dark Knight Rises, this this machine that will make the internet forget you. Same with GoldenEye. It's like an yeah. early, mid-90s, the internet is this, you know, binary thing. Yes, these days uh, we uh, have gotten way more savvy, so... Uh, technologically so it's just so funny to to watch even with all the stuff that's going with the banks we are this is it's interesting because if fight club was made five years later it would have been one of those like techno paranoia movies wouldn't it Um, probably yeah there there was that period of i like the 90s cyberpunk of strange days and joining the mind and then this stuff led into this and then there was a bit of a gap where oh wait post matrix what do we do with this emerging form Mm. we haven't quite figured it out yet and then around the time the social network oh okay we realize the world we're in but there is a gap and fight club was one of the last of that era i think that characterizes it well going back to what we were saying about the ending man to me him holding hands with helena bonham carter as an ending just rings so false it's like this story does not need a romantic conclusion this character has not earned redemption it turns out he's a, a terrible character um, he's a terrible person based on on what he's done, and and you know the I think the triumph is waking up to that. It doesn't have to be you know you get a reward. Like he he has a lot of atoning to do before they should. And really, like to to speak about Helena Bonham Carter, whose character is is intriguing. It's a film, movie that's based on on really men and masculine issues, and you know we don't need women. So she isn't in it much by design, um, but she's intriguing in in the presence that she does have. And at the end of it, I was just thinking, like, she deserves to get the hell away from this guy. I don't want to see them together. Anyway. Neither. I, I agree. The, the yeah. ending was quite hollow. I appreciate the performance in the less. She's also very good in the new season of The Crown. That's out as She's Margaret. a great actor, yeah. Anyway. So, so that is Fight Club. Um, it is available, what, everywhere you can find it. Yeah. And it's streaming on Amazon Prime, I think, last I checked. It's 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 somewhere. You'll you'll see it around. The next film we're talking about is Frank Darabont's The Green Mile. Frank Darabont 
famously directed the Shawshank Redemption, one of the most beloved films, I'd say, of all time. And this is the Shawshank Redemption 2. And you know, it turned out this movie, it appears, is also one of the most beloved films of all time because it's ranked number 29 on the IMDb Top 250 still, which shocked me. Which surprises me. I mean, I remember it was on television every few weeks. I remember that too. I remember watching it as a kid. And, uh, you know, I just watched it for the first time since then. And this is the height of... You know, Tom Hanks's... I mean, he's still very popular. He's in a new Mr. Rogers movie, but it was the height of his appeal post-Philadelphia. Nice Farrakhan, guy. Post-Philadelphia. It is starring Michael Clark Duncan. Sam Rockwell, an early movie, an early role. And it is about the Green Mile, a death row um, in Southern America where persons who have been sentenced to death come to die. And it's about the one of the last electric chairs... It's not one of the last electric chairs, but an electric chair yeah. operation. Yeah, it's about the, by Tom Hanks. The, it's basically a, another prison drama. He was definitely going, okay, let's get back to the Shawshank well, and Stephen he, King. And he meets Michael Clark Duncan's character who has powers of healing and has been sentenced to death. And part of the role film is Tom Hanks' character's conflict as to what to do with this character who he believes is a unique presence in the world. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll be up front. I hated this film. I hate it. I don't, I almost don't know where to start. But the first things that rub me the wrong way are the you know like the Titanic or Benjamin Button esque you know the like the are there any good movies that have an old man telling the sad story of you know his life in flashback? Okay, I was frustrated by the flashbacks. I think the narration from the red character in Shawshank handled this much better as narrative form. And it's just because we know what's going to happen. We know in 50 years' time he's going to be all right and hanging out in modern day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was... No, I can't think of one, no. It tries, um, except for The Irishman. Yeah. But The the Irishman, I think, contends with age in a way that is has depth and it's being told by an actual old man, which probably adds to that. And it in a lot of these cases, including The Green Mile, it's just kind of unearned sentimentality, I think. The way that, it, yeah. it was made today that just aged Tom Hanks 50-something years. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. CG. Here we go. Yeah. To me, it is so 90s. It's another film to talk about in terms of being dated, but it, in a way that I can't forgive so much as in Fight Club, because in Fight Club, it's dated ideologically and in terms of, you know, like knowledge about technology and such. But this, I think, reflects a lot of the bad taste of the day. Like, the cinematography is so conventionally beautiful that the whole thing just kind of looks fake. Like, everyone always has this warm orange glow of good lighting on their face, and then there's lightning. Like, it has this fake look, but not in a way I found charming. And the music is constantly... T- you know, tinkering yeah. around this in was the, the background. This the period of tinges, the Matrix, Bad Boys. Yeah, where you yeah, just have new, something over yeah, hanging because the whole film. digital color grading was was it was new, and it it's you know suddenly we can just make everything yellow and make everything blue. Yeah, the music, the cinematography, the editing. When the big flashback comes with uh, you know revealing Sam Rockwell, you know actually He's did really did good in this. Yeah, but man, it, it's the as start- is, um, Hutchison. The- he, yeah, he is great, but it's starting the trend where Sam Rockwell for some reason loves playing racists. You know, we've got this three billboards, and now he's playing an SS guy in Jojo Rabbit. There's probably more examples I can't think of, but anyway, um, you know, and the the editing in that moment just made it seem kind of laughable to me. Like it's kind of kitschy. Like this is '90s. We've just started digital editing, and here's all these like whew, whew, sound effects, and like I don't know. There, there was just something kitsch about the way that all these like editing tricks that we now associate with cheap TV and cheap video editing get used at this moment of high high emotion. 
But anyway. I like this film on balance. I think it could have been an hour shorter. You could have cut a lot out of The pacing is way too long. Um, I will, however, highlight this, some of the things in major respects that I liked about it. James Cromwell is very good. Tom Hanks, obviously. I love the high slack sequence where they have to put the guy in the straitjacket in order to take Michael Clark Duncan's character out. Um, I love the whole arc with both the with the Sam Rockwell character which was so interesting but also with the exception of the twist which was hackneyed and didn't need to be in there and was just revealed out of nowhere the whole sequence with the mouse I liked a lot I loved that story arc I could have watched a whole film just based on that I loved how clinical they were about the executions because this is not an era of history I know too much about and therefore I quite liked that and I would say, actually, the one, I, I will say one thing I really disliked about the film, and it's always Jarvis since I first watched it back in the day, and that is the Gary Sinise scene. It didn't need to be in there. We didn't need an explanation. But um, well, what what was the, what happened? Gary Sinise was the guy who was the police officer. Yeah, who yeah, yeah. Michael Clark Duncan character. Tom Hanks goes out to meet him. And oh, just yeah, like yeah, a bit yeah. of fan service. You liked Apollo 13. Here, here are your favorite actors from this movie. Well, it's here to, I think it's just there for like extra... Um, Look at how racist they were in the South stuff with with the way that he he talks about Michael Clark Duncan's character John Coffey. Okay, John Coffey. Yes. Yeah. So I agree with you that James Cromwell's good, and I think the most interesting thing about the film, I agree, is the historical detail about the electric chair, the way that you see these people clinically operating, the, you know, going through the procedure, the way that you see it being prepared, you see it being carried out, um, you see the rehearsals, and when it fails, and when it it's fails, a very dramatic effect. Okay. Here's what I hate about this movie. Everything else. Um, to me, this movie reflects a really, really simple, really, really moronic approach to drama. It, it's especially egregious because the movie's over three hours long. You need to have some degree of character depth in this. But in this movie, everyone is either really purely good or they're satanically bad. And um, the the drama over, can are we going to be killing this innocent man doesn't take up most of the film. Most of the film is just dramatic conflicts that are created by the by the satanically bad Percy guy, and the movie is just so dumb. And then the new guy, the satanically bad Sam Rockwell prisoner, and the movie is just so dumb about the way that it characterizes Percy as bad. Like, if we don't realize that he's a bad guy because he never does anything nice in the entire movie and is always scheming something evil, then he, you know, he's constantly putting on this, like, dumb, you know, I'm an idiot face with, like, his mouth hanging open. Like, everything is so underlined. Um, the, the movie is too kind of, like, w- well-made, you know, to be, like, like, give you the feeling of this is terrible when you watch it, you know, that would cause people to recognize this is, like, a horrible film. But there's just nothing there, I think, um, dramatically. But I disagree because we're dealing with all these death row inmates, and yes, some of them, like the Sam Rock character, is terrible people. The person with the mouse, a terrible person who, with the mouse, who was there because he'd done committed the terrible crime and admitted what he'd done. So he was obviously a bad person. But we saw that there was good in this person, and there were multiple characters like them. And I had that's a feeling of this film. I had a feeling you would bring up that character, but the movie doesn't tell us what he did because it's afraid that we might dislike him. He's just some guy on death row who we only basically see the good in him, and we see him laughing when Percy is, you know, wets himself and uh because percy has been has been a dick to him you know um but but we we know he's done something wrong and he seeks to redeem himself we know that what he's done is potentially redeemable but it's enough that there is a very strong shade to this character as there are others and certainly the tom hanks character is shown to do a terrible act but he's depicted throughout as a good person you're talking about at the end of the film yes (sighs) it comes the movie sort of establishes that he has no choice and that like 
I know. I, oh, but no, but he could have, and he said, I could just let you go, John. And yeah, you'd probably get caught, but I could do the right thing and let you go. So yeah. There is a, there's a very strong conflict However, there. this comes at the very end of the film where he's been unambiguously shown to be basically saintly until that moment. And on top of that, the, see, the movie, I don't think, has these shades to it. He is given absolution by this Jesus figure, John Coffey, who tells him, it's fine, you know, I want to die, I want you to do this. So even though he may be conflicted and even though he does the wrong thing, I don't think the film has the balls to go there into really any, anything murky. I think the film is really reassuring um, in, in emotionally. And to me, this is, okay, it's a super simplistic approach to drama um, because to me what this, it feels like this film is all about is making you hate the real bad characters who, again, have nothing good about them. They're like Percy, nothing he he is a bad man he is a, a guy who lives to thrive on people's pain and yes he is but we have to make the distinction that there's sam rockwell who's just irredeemably bad and percy who is bad but also because he's also insecure and weak it comes from a different a lot of his actions come from a different place i'm sure so it's not just here's um I, evil uh, yeah. marvel character I, I agree yeah i agree that his character is meant to have come from you know is meant to be insecure but i didn't find that there was that was ever shown to any point that i could actually begin empathizing with him to me it feels like the way this movie works is it's about making you hate a character and then making you cheer at their comeuppance which to me is cheap and pandering to the worst instincts of the audience on top of that I, i i know we've got limited time but like i have to talk about the john coffee character to me it's so mawkish to create a character that's is nothing but perfect. He's perfect, and his his flaw, if there's anything, is that he's too simple for this world. To create a character like that and then make the conflict about killing him is just like so so cheap, such a cheap tearjerker situation. Um, but the the movie's so dumb about uh, that. No, I think it's a right. On one hand, it's a right to have a purely tragic figure, but on the other. John Coffey acknowledges, I've done bad things, I've done wrong things. And yes, we don't see them, like the character who was on death, other characters on death row, but it's a right to know that there is this very rich backstory. But John Coffey is so saintly that he is suffering, he suffers when other people suffer. He is Jesus. Do you actually believe that John Coffey did anything bad? I, he seems like the kind of guy who just tells himself... I, I take him in his word. I wouldn't. John Coffey is a guy who's like, yeah, you should kill me. Yeah, you know, like, it's just, he, he is too good for this world. He says that he's okay with dying because he's so hurt by all the pain, all the, the way that people are bad to each other. This guy did not do anything wrong ever, right? Um, he, but man, okay, the the movie is not smart enough to realize that it's really setting up an anti death penalty um, story because this guy is, um, you know, he's an innocent man who's, who's sent to, he's basically sent, who's sentenced to death and killed, right? But in the film's morality. It's okay to, to kill, you know, to sentence, decide just that people are worthy of death because the arbiter of goodness, John Coffey, does that to Sam Rockwell. And he also seemingly fries Percy's brain. So it's not, even though it's created a perfect anti-death penalty story, it's not anti-death penalty. It's just anti-people who aren't God offering judgment. And okay, I have to talk about the racial aspect of this movie. It's so goddamn condescending. It's like, in order to show that people are racist... The, the, you need to have a black guy who's actually Jesus. He's not a character. He doesn't have any past. He doesn't have any inner life except for the ways that he can magically help help the people in the prison's life. Um, Spike Lee spoke about this as like the magical Negro archetype. This is this is it. 
It's a, it's a guy who doesn't have any life except for helping white people through his magical powers. It's it's like noble savage flashbacks. I hate it. It's like to show that the racist 30s Southerners are wrong and black people aren't subhuman, they have to be literally Jesus. It's just like this movie is so dumb. And on that note, every single thing that happens in the plot is underlined. So if you're a, a smart viewer in any way, you always know everything that's about to happen. Oh. Uh. Not necessarily the shooting. I didn't see that coming. Remember no, you're right. I didn't. I didn't. You're right. That surprised me. But no, every was, other thing. Oh, uh, so that is the Green Mile. Is. There are better Stephen King adaptations out there. We should have said it was a Stephen King adaptation, and it is available well everywhere. We'll be yep. back in a few minutes on Film Fight Club, talking Eyes Wide Shut and Stanley Kubrick. We should also mention Bright Nehru. Uh, we'll be back He'll joining be back next us week. next week. We're looking forward to having him back and lead up to oh god, all our summer coverage. Stay tuned. Oh, God, summer's coming. Summer is summer's here, and we'll be right back. Celebrate summer at your local City of Sydney pool on Saturday, December 7th. Free entry and special events between 10am to 3pm, including giant inflatables, barbecues, classes, and tours. Membership specials will be available for swim programs and fitness memberships. Visit whatson.sydney and search for Aquatic Centre Open Day. City of Sydney sponsors 2SER. When said the moon to the stars in the sky. Nick Cave and Warren Ellis. The wind home. Don't miss the legendary Australian musicians bringing their suite of film scores to life with the Sydney Symphony Orchestra and Sydney Philharmonia Choirs at Sydney Opera House. Who said the sun that melted the ground? Get final tickets now for Nick Cave and Warren Ellis. December 9 at sydneyoperahouse.com. Sponsors of 2SER. Use, experience and think about emerging areas of journalistic practice, including drones, virtual reality and mobile reporting in our advanced journalism course at UTS. Google UTS Advanced Journalism to find out more. UTS School of Communication sponsors 2SER. And welcome back. You're on Film Fight Club with Glenn Falkenstein and Chris Evans, and we are talking 1999, and it is the big release, one of the big releases of the year, Stanley Kubrick's last film, Eyes Wide Such. And at the time, uh, prior to his death, in March of that year, he was discussing producing, directing AI Artificial Intelligence, which was ultimately directed by Steven Spielberg, but this ultimately became the master's last Final project. Work. Yeah, he died while the film was still unfinished, contrary to what was reported at the time. Um, for example... Kate Blanchett was cast as the lady who helps Tom Cruise at the after Stanley Kubrick in voiceover. She's played by a model, but the voice behind the mask is Kate Blanchett, uncredited. And that was and that was cast by Leon Vitali, um, who, if you've seen Film Worker, you'll know a bit of the story about him. Yeah, fascinating history, particularly regards Barry Lyndon and many of yeah. Kubrick's great projects. Yeah, that was that was entirely done after Kubrick's death. So that to me suggests that there was a lot of tinkering still to come on this film. Kubrick died the morning after screening a cut of this film. Yeah, but we, we have to remember he spent months, years. He was a editing. super perfectionist. He did what a hundred. There was a, a, a hundred eighty takes? takes of one one shot sequence. in The Shining. I think it was the sequence. No, I'm talking about oh, I, oh, I think yeah, it was yeah. the sequence in the apartment. So be a hundred takes. Yeah. Um, with a lady he met on the street and right. going to the uh, quite the cramped quarters. We should talk about what the film is about. It is about uh, Tom. It's the Tom Cruise, the Cole Kidman, he is a doctor in New York and having heard a confession or statement by his, not confession is the wrong word, a statement by his wife which troubles him regarding her thoughts of another man of fidelity. He goes on a wandering mission throughout the streets of New York uh, which continues to escalate. And then the following that's, that's day basically it. it goes into Clockwork Orange revisiting the old spaces in non-twilight time. 
Yeah. And that's actually one of my favorite parts of the film. It's a very, very dreamlike film, but in a way that is quite subtle. The film in general is is very subtle, I think. It is. Uh, this was, and probably remains with the exception of Magnolia, which will come out two weeks later, in December of 1999, my favorite Tom Cruise performance. Yeah. I really liked him in this. Sidney Pollack's really good. Lily Nicole Sobie- Kidman is amazing in this. The laughing sequence. Um, she was so great. Lily Sobieski, an actress who I've always been very, always really liked. She's done quite a few projects. She was great in this, one of her earlier roles. And there are several moments in this, like, I quite loved. I, Clockwork Orange remains my favorite Kubrick film. I love how Alex goes back to his old haunts from, from such a different perspective. And this is the only film where Kubrick has so palpably rendered something similar as he, Tom Cruise goes back to the house and goes back to the place where he met the Lily Sobieski character. There's so much to say about this movie. We're definitely going to go into overtime because I had to do my Green Mile rant. But uh, <laughs> on the podcast, we'll discuss it in much more depth. But in short, I find this to be aesthetically gorgeous and really interesting intriguing and unconventional in its narrative. I know it's been one of the more divisive, not the divisive Kubrick film after, I'd say, The Leiter and Spartacus. But I think time will be kind to it. I think time is already being kind to it. I, I, I liked it when I first saw it. Um, it's not... My favorite Kubricks are still Doctor Strange Love, Clockwork, and um, 2001, but this would, I'd say, shortly follow. So we'll be back next week. We were going into summer coverage, Star Wars, Little Women, a lot of the major films that are coming out. Let us know what you want us to fight about. We're doing some... Uh, major coverage of The Rise of Skywalker, the most anticipated film of the season, uh, with Rat Niru back next week. And stay tuned for The Sonic Assassin on 2SCR. And pick a fight with us anytime. This has been Glenn Falkenstein and Chris Evans. Have a great night, guys. Stay safe, drive safe, and enjoy movies. Good night. Good advice. Yeah, yeah I, I'd say it'd go for me. Clockwork, 2001, Strange Love, Eyes Wide Shut, Barry Lyndon. Barry Lyndon's one of my top... Um, for me, it's probably... The killers. I like The Killers a lot. So I've watched it. It's on Stan. I'll, I'll, oh, nice. I'll watch it shortly. Yeah. Spartacus is good, but it just doesn't feel like a Kubrick film for it, the it, reasons it sort of that... Really but out of Kubrick's control. Yeah. I think he, he was more of a director for hire. It gave, gave him a nice payday to fund his own projects, basically. Yeah. Not a Full Metal Jacket fan. No. Every, most people I speak to don't like it these days, but I really like it. I, I It seems like it... First half, yes. Yeah, second half, no. I really like the second half. Um... But the first half is better, but I still I still really, really liked it. I can't stand Lolita. Yeah. So bad. I haven't seen it in a long time. The book is just so beyond. Yeah. And again, not Kubrick's fault. Yeah, Kubrick was restricted. Actually, some of it was Kubrick's fault. Sorry. All the Peter Sell stuff was bad. Um, yeah, but, but it was quite beyond Kubrick's control, how Lolita turned out. I remember Killer's Kiss being good, but I can't say I remember much of it, so... Yeah. <laughs> um, Look, dude, what about Paths of Glory? I think that's one of the Oh, best. shit, Paths of Oh, so good. Oh, my God. It's really it, good, it, it, right? it's, it's so much better than Breaking Morant. Yes, <laughs> it's much better. Yeah, there's actually... A, the characters, you know, weren't war criminals, so there was more of a nuance to it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. But Breaking Morant, it, it's such a strange one because it's, it's come to be this, you know... I iconoclast of Aussie films whereas the director and others kind of said yeah look we didn't think these were good guys we were criticising the system but that doesn't mean that we think that yeah we, we, didn't, we didn't think they were done a ridiculous injustice like yeah they were bad people who killed innocent people yeah um, the problem was the British not taking responsibility for the orders they get and scapegoating Australian troops yeah oh, so killing South Africans mm. but yeah I don't, I, uh, the movies no, it's not good uh, I agree, I agree, it's not that good. Um, Paths of Glory. Paths of Glory, I always forget Paths of Glory. I know, that's because it's... it. But the thing is, in some ways, it's the such end, a Kubrick film. Oh, the end scene is 
beautiful. It is. It's a it's a great great film. And but it's very you know it doesn't feel like when we go on podcast we should say hey, you've got Paz's glory. Why don't we just record? We should just be recording this. We should. Actually, I think I think we were recording a lot of it. Uh, so yeah, like that was our non-planned discussion of Kubrick <laughs> films. But I feel it's still yeah that should be in the podcast because. We, we like Kubrick. You know, and, and it's it's nice to hear. So we're, we're still recording, right? Oh, yeah, we're still Everyone. recording, yeah. Brilliant. We were recording this whole time. Yeah, well, you know, Film Fight Club. After Dark. After Dark, yeah, that no was one. our... <laughs> you know, unplanned. We, we would have we probably just, said that stuff anyway. We just want you to know that, that we are just film nerds. Like, what you hear on the show is just, as you've seen or heard, uh, what we do all the time with cameras record, you know, or microphones going or not, so... Yeah, that's basically... Yeah. yeah, we'd be we'd be at home watching a Cooper. I'm probably watching Killer's Kiss because I don't remember it very well at all. Yeah, and so my my shameful admission that I that I haven't seen it, but it's on Stan is is there immortalized for all time. Ah, oh, 2001. I think you know, that would be the one that has the most followers in terms of his favorite movie. It's great. I but think Clockwork. I'd really seen so good an adaptation and its use of. Language and again and, revisiting this era and Kubrick and, Kubrick's signature visual approach with like the um, what's the word like plan? It's like the receding horizon lines. Oh, I'm forgetting. It's like plan, I, I'm going to Google it. Yes, it's, it's right. <laughs> but um, clockwork and it also has a very dedicated performance from McDowell. It does. He, he suffered nearly three very serious injuries to his eye. His ribs and because uh, it was it was the ribs in the punching scene where the harness broke. There was the water apparatus in the trough scene where he couldn't breathe properly, and to his cornea, I uh, was scratched during one of the sequences oh, where he really? wants to Beethoven. Wow! And I've I've seen a lot of scratched corneas in my old work, and uh, yeah, they're, they're they're not they're not pretty. Wow. Um. But, but yeah, what I was trying to get to while I was failing to find the exact word is that. The visual style is that, and the approach that he brings to all his films was just so perfect for this one. Like, like it just worked. It was just completely right. The the extreme aesthetic perfection that he was chasing at that point in his career with super symmetrical shots everywhere Look, I was just see this ever being remade. So right for the clo- for a Clockwork Orange, it gives it this like this cold feeling as well as the the, the kind of feeling of like impending doom and also the feeling of of like making you look at the violence like you can't like giving it this kind of authority and grandness yeah and i'd highlight that effect several sequences um with separate from the violence the curve of milk bar which is all just always beautifully done the sequence where he kills the invades the home kills the lady with the phallic structure the sequence and which is returned to later in the film where he invades the man's home while singing singing in the rain the sequence where he's and we're going to spoil this movie the sequence where he's banging his head great humor here when he's um when the when the act, peace activists are playing Beethoven and he falls out the window and Kubrick literally threw the camera out the window. My and my favorite, my very favorite sequence in the film where the four Alex and his three droogs are just walking along the pier and it's in slow motion and out of nowhere Alex just takes his stick and whacks one of them and knocks him through and then jumps up and down. And I think it's there's a, I think it's the, the ninth that's playing. This is glorious flourish. Oh, so the final sequence um, was where all, it, right? in the hospital. Yeah, yeah, and. I look. I, I really love uh, Clockwork Orange, but let's talk eyes wide shut. Oh, we would. I want to make one one thing. I'll show Clockwork Orange. <laughs> um, there's been a lot of discussion as to I think a lot of different accounts as to how Kubrick adapted the book. He got an edition as his 
as I understand, has been reported, that does which not didn't feature have the, the final, final chapter. chapter, which is a bad chapter, which is totally distinct from the rest of the film. During production, apparently Kubrick found out about the chapter and decided to stay without it. I think that's good. And the very cynical final sequence um, with the uh, symbolic allusion to um, all the high society people with the white backdrop, just beautiful. It was an ideal ending and something more akin to that should have been the ending for Burgess's book. Yeah. The, the, um, the thing about Kubrick, there are many things about Kubrick, <laughs> but one thing about Kubrick is literary adaptations are so common and usually fail. He's one of the few people who consistently made films that were at least the equal of the source material. And I, the reason why, I think, is he knew when to stay faithful and he knew when to go on his own path. On top of that, he had a really inc- obviously strong cinematic imagination, so he knew how to reimagine scenes cinematically. He he didn't stay... Even if he was staying true to the, the events, he knew how to reimagine it as something that works on screen. And I'd love to have the discussion of the film we haven't referenced vis-a-vis The Shining, because I haven't read the book. I know that Stephen King, again, Stephen King hated the adaptation. He preferred a television adaptation that happened and later. Stephen Stephen King likes all his adaptations, even the ver- the incredibly shoddy ones. He's very generous about that, but he doesn't like The Shining because the original novel was too close to him, because it was about autobiographical aspects that Kubrick didn't uh, focus on in his adaptation. Um, there was one thing that always jarred me about The Shining, and it's when the ghouls, ghosts, however you want to call them, open the door for Jack Torrance. And it was the one moment it's in the, the film one moment where, where it, breaks real- it breaks the reality of the film, or it, at least it introduces breaks, a new reality. It breaks the idea that this could all just be in Jack's head. It, yeah. um, but then again, at the end, Wendy does seem to be seeing some real supernatural stuff. But it, it isn't clear that it's the same things Jack is seeing. And, True. And the whole point of the film is that in this isolation, be driven to... Um, illusion, see illusions. Yeah, but I think um, actually making it that um, this is part of the reality of the film, that the supernatural is real, in no way detracts from the film working as metaphor as well. Because I think Kubrick, even though he introduces that element where, yes, the supernatural did take place, the way that it's directed and the way that the information is doled out to you, it's very much reinforcing the metaphorical aspect the whole way through. So I think it still stands up. I think I, I liked it very much. I remember watching it um, when I was quite young on SBS when they screened all the Kubrick films. Oh, I've, not I remember that. What it was and still being quite frightened. Uh, my favorite it's anecdote a scary about, film. It is. My favorite anecdote is that he, apparently he didn't tell the little kid that the twins were around the corner when he came on the bicycle. So the reaction is real oh, from wow. the child actor, which is a horrible thing to do for a child. He's, he's, he's known he's, for some horrible things to do. Yeah. Maybe not. Maybe not quite well. I was going to say not quite as horrible as William Friedkin on The Exorcist, but Kubrick's horrible in his own way, making people do... Earlier in the in the show, I mentioned 180 takes. That was actually of the scene of from uh, The Shining of Skepman Crothers running down the stairs. 180 takes for that. Oh, God. Oh, so it's had so many rip-offs. Crimson Peak a few years ago, terrible uh, reimagining in oh, a way. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Crimson but- Peak was... was um, it was like a, it was was it notorious? It was I'm pretty sure it's notorious. It's like the plot of a Hitchcock movie. No, uh, the notorious and Mission Impossible Two are the same movie, right? But, but there's a lot of ones where, yeah. I think it's notorious, um, but I'm having a bad moment of blurring my Hitchcocks together. It was like the plot of that retrofitted onto The Shining and a couple of other movies. Yeah, with elements of I would even say Pan's Labyrinth, just the idea that Kubrick, uh, sorry, not Kubrick's Del Toro's. Visual imagination for villains and ghouls. Oh yeah, and but but um, all his films have a 
uh, his latter films have a very similar um, visual style. But because he, I, the reason for that is because he designs a lot of the monsters himself before he ships them out to a you know production designer. He, they come, they're very close to his sketches, so his imagination shines through. Like if you look at Hellboy Two, it's like a superhero movie with the, the monsters from Pan's Labyrinth. Right, the, the two things I did like about Crimson Peak were the red blooded snow at the end of the film. Uh, before Rian Johnson did in the Last Jedi, which I yep. watched this morning in preparation for our discussion next week, and um, Jessica Chastain in the gown, billowing, running down the stairs. You know, she's so good, and Crim- she's far and above Wesakowska or Hiddleston Crim- or anyone else or or, or Cunham. What's he even doing there? Charlie oh Hunter's yeah, true. Movie. Yeah. Um, Crimson Peak, like it's so bad in a lot of ways, but I kind of like it. It's because it, it just has this trashy feel to me where it's like, for me, that's like good trash. There's, there's, I guess there's enough charm in that we don't get these kind of like sumptuously imagined haunted house movies with lush production design anymore. So even though there's a lot wrong with it, I'll just go with it. I, I did appreciate the gothic element of there's something happened when these kids were kids and we don't want to believe it, but we're pretty sure it happened. And that's pure gothic for me and yeah i liked that so um, we should talk about we should talk about we eyes, talk wide, about eyes shut. wide shut yeah that movie so okay. <laughs> um i so. remember seeing this when it came out i've watched it a couple really you watched it when it came out on i should say on tv okay i watched, I watched it when it, so back then it was like two years yeah you, you probably would, would not have been allowed into the cinema when no i really the movie i really would i mean really i really wanted to see when i was at that time was american pie but i couldn't get into the cinema for that one nice <laughs> and your parents um, wouldn't take you no they wouldn't that, that would be an awkward uh, viewing experience if you could even get them to agree to take you, right? Unless you had, like, really cool hippie parents. Hey, Mom, can we watch the, the you know, the, the Man Fucks a Pie movie? <laughs> um, but I do appreciate it that listening. It took me three times to see The Phantom Menace, which I really wanted to, and I, I, I was glad for. So that was that was, that was was my priority that year. You saw, three ti- you saw it three times? Oh, yeah. The, yeah, yeah. Was, yeah, I remember. I went with my friends. It was. I, I was, it was so great. excited about Star Wars at the time. Oh, I remember. And it was it was... The first, it was the only, and it was the only Star Wars film at that time that wasn't from the original trilogy. But it's more than that. It's we were getting a taste of not just the world, but it was I, it was Star Wars coming back. But, but it was we, the whole. Remember when like Darth Vader hunted down the Jedi? We're, look, we're going to do a Star Wars flashback episode on the night that the Last Jedi is coming out. I yeah. mean, the Rise of Skywalker. Rise of Skywalker. So we'll we'll get back to that then. But yeah. now eyes, eyes wide, wide shut. shut. So, so, <laughs> so Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise had a good few months between Magnolia and Eyes Wide Shut. He did. Tom Cruise at this point was still taken seriously. I think that his retreat. I think he's into, taken seriously more as a more as an action actor. That, that's what I was. Than a dramatic. Actor. That's what I was getting into. Yeah, I think that part of the reason why he's gone so strongly into the action stuff is because post the Scientology controversy and him becoming such tabloid fodder uh, it's probably hard for him to to play you know serious roles yeah let's just remember this came out around the time that the divorce of Kim Nicole Kim was making very big headlines right everywhere and so in terms of Tom Cruise's performance I know it's a cameo but Tropic Thunder oh yeah 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 he's great he's great Harvey Weinstein we were talking earlier on the show about uh, I spoke about the ways that I thought that Fight Club and The Green Mile are dated the only thing that you could say dates this movie, and I don't, I think it really doesn't, is the celebrity power couple of Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman being at the fore. Otherwise, I think this film feels timeless. Well, because it, it's very '90s. This was off three major projects: did Far and Away, Days of Thunder, and this was the third and final of the Hollywood, the Hollywood power couple. Yeah, and I don't think there's been a Hollywood power couple to on that level in front of the screen. Yeah. To match, and this, anyway, this is you could say Brad when, and Angelina, but that, but, but, that that, was, but this is from a yeah. time when movie stars were still the biggest thing you could be. Now yeah, it's that's right. Pop stars, that's right. That's right. Um, oh, it's okay. 
I think part of the reason why this film looks timeless is in terms of the uh, the cinematography. Uh, I spoke about the really 90s look of The Green Mile where it's really, really slick commercial photography combined with um, heavy digital color grading. On the other hand, this film looks really organic. Um, the cinematography, I think, is masterful and is actually incredibly meticulous knowing Kubrick and if you study it and look at what he's doing and notice that the same kind of trends in the in the composition and the colors come forward again and again and again throughout the film it definitely has been really precisely planned but it's designed not to be showy and to to um, keep a nice distance from the characters except and only go for close-ups in the really big moments so it has um, as well as the long takes it gives it this really organic like style Um, it's really not showy the, the style sort of becomes a little bit invisible, but at the same time, the compositions are gorgeous and and not con- like it's not so art house in the way it's filmed, but there's just again there's that word subtle, it's subtly unconventional choices in the way that for example a conversation is is shot or edited where you know rather instead of the shot reverse shot over the shoulder, the camera will be you know showing a little a little bit more of the side of someone's head you know of the person who would be at the reverse angle than you would normally get or instead of cutting between two people's faces he gives you shots from the waist up with like a nice little bit of negative space in the background it's just really really nice to watch the actors playing this movie because he films it so well um, um, and the depth of field in this is gorgeous. Notice the is. city Pollock character, both in the sequence where we meet him at the party and later around the pool table, he's always at a remove because his character is a bit of a mentor. He's always at a remove for Cruz. Yes. Nicole Kidman character, she's always a bit further away and gradually comes closer and closer throughout the yeah, film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at the grouping in the sequence where we meet um, the Lily Sobieski character and how everyone is further and just running throughout the scene. And then when it comes to the secondary sequence where they're all around the counter, they're all huddled, they're all close together. Yeah. Um, look at the way the revolving interactions he has with the piano player. And look the, the, at the, the isolation like, when the scene when he's discovered when yes. he doesn't have the fake password. The cre- I love the um, the way that he deploys the zooms that you um, really were most familiar from the Shining era f- for me. Um, I love the way that he employs those shining esque zooms to create that feeling of alienation. But again, that's a that's not something that dates it to the '90s. That's that's a really nineteen uh, seventies ish um, stylistic device. But he doesn't use it in the kitschy way that '70s films do. Um, at you know that makes them feel dated. And yeah, uh, the 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 lighting is. I, really beautiful. I think part of the reason this film is filmed at Christmas, I think I've read this somewhere a long time ago, but I could be wrong. I think part of the reason it's set at Christmas is just so that um, that provides for different lighting opportunities of low light, but lighting up people's faces with the, the nice sort of scattered light of Christmas lights everywhere, which, which was, a number of scenes do use. Which was used to great alternative effect in the sequence where he meets the young woman on the street and it goes That's to her right. apartment because she has the old scrappy Christmas tree. And this I whole love the Christmas trees. I, I love that they never mention that it's Christmas, but it's just always going on in the background. Kind of like Lethal Weapon. I yeah. think it's just ancillary too, but it makes a point. It's contrasting the joy of Christmas yeah. as uh, Donna did with the cynicism of what's surrounding the film. And that sequence yeah. is my favorite in the movie because the the apartment it's so cluttered it's telling the story as someone else pointed out to me there's a pram in the corner there's uh 
Christmas it's gift Tanya. sitting on the bathtub. It's Kubrick had such tension it's to detail so that comes through ridiculous. in this scene. It's but even throughout the film, I was marveling at the um, the production design of Tom and Nicole's apartment. Like it just every, the the costume shop, everything looks real. A lot of people have commented to me, not to, to me. Um, a lot of people have commented that the um, you know, the movie looks fake because New York was shot on the set or something like that. But to me, it looks really real. It looks really lived in. Everything looks perfectly placed. Um, going back to the way that it's lit is contrasting it with, like, the Green Mile where everyone always has, like, the movie star perfect shadow on the face in the right places. It looks organic. It It is simultaneously gorgeous, but as if you were just watching the scene, like, believably you were just watching these scenes in reality. Like, this is how, not a camera, but the human eye would capture it. Like, it's just, it looks beautiful without ever looking like he's really trying to sh- show off. One, it's only the um, moment when you think about, think like how the um, blocking is done, like you were talking about with Sidney Pollock's character, um, or, or you notice some of the same stylistic trends appearing again and again that you realize that this isn't just you know um done without much thought that this actually was perfectly planned out one of those moments is early on at the party scene um when nicole kidman is talking to the hungarian guy who's trying to pick her up when she slips away from him um this ho- the whole moment has just sort of shot as if it was incidentally with the camera just following what they're doing but as she slips away and her head she's moving further and further towards this christmas star in the background fra- you know framing around her head and it's just like, wow, that was actually really meticulously <laughs> planned out. But it's the master's touch that he doesn't feel like he has to show off all the time. He doesn't feel like he has to have all these compositions that call attention to themselves. No, and there's a couple of videos. Well, one you only haven't mentioned is the two sequences where Tom Cruise approaches the house. Um, Kubrick is great at this because we've seen how he shot the Overlook, Ho- Overlook Hotel in The Shining moving towards it. But here it's eerie but without emphasizing, without zooming in, without any music yeah. cue. It's gorgeous. This I I was thinking earlier um, that it's it's because it's not so showy as the films that people normally bring up. Um, this might seem like a strange call. The flashback sequences or where the sequences yeah, those where are, Tom those Cruise are a bit is imagining. No, not the flashbacks, excuse me, the, the sequence where, where Tom Cruise is imagining Nicole Kidman yeah. with this other man. Those are the only showy things. Top, yeah. And a bit over the top. Yeah, I agree. But um, outside of that, uh, you know, really organic feeling. And for that reason... Um, it yeah the the or the rich people's apartments the lushness of the ornate decorations everywhere um and the the house where the cult ritual is taking place oh where Tom Cruise just doesn't want to be near any of this and you get the impression that he has this disdain for the high society that he surrounds himself with but he doesn't want to be without because he still thrives in it because and because he's he, the he glamour feels... couple he's so handsome and, and the people admire yeah. him and you're the handsome he, doctor we're he, gonna go to he has to feel that he's part of it because he needs to assert his worth. The film's really all about his insecurity. But before we get into that... that fascinating that this came out around the same time as I know, American Psycho. Yeah. And, obviously a very different strand. And talking about it now, I see how it's kind of related to that trend of, you know, Office Space, Fight Club, The Matrix, American Beauty as well. But, but in a much, much more subtle re- way. And real and lived Much in. more real. And it's ironic that... It's an old man's film. The Edward it's Norton based on real life experience. And the, and the Kevin, in, in Fight Club, the Kevin Spacey character, the regular office workers, the people most people can relate to. Most people can't relate to a handsome 30-something doctor who lives in a loyal high society who, looks, who is Tom Cruise. But and it yet, still feels aspect, and in, in yeah. the same way that um, everyone can relate to um, the Banderas character in Pain and Glory. But 
um, El Moldovar made it. I think feel any lived in great and real, yeah, and relatable I th- and powerful. I think any great storytelling starts from something specific, but eventually reaches the universal. And I think Eyes Wide Shut does the same. But what I was saying before about all the, the I just want to make one big hot take call when we were talking about the composition and the and the production design and the richness and the, the colors. The colors are beautiful, by the way. The the scene where um. Nicole Kidman and, and Tom Cruise have their their post smoking weed fight that triggers off everything is so um, first of all it's just an amazing piece of film. But the blue- Wait, you about the scene where Tom are on the bed and yes. it's just the two of them in the red room. Yeah, that was actually one of my weaker sequences in the film. That and the final sequence oh, when no, it's just Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman I, playing off each other without anything right. else hanging on. I love not as strong. I, I actually loved that scene because I loved their performances. Um, I love the the way that a little strained more than the rest of it. I, I I really like it. I really like the way that Nicole Kidman is sort of like putting on the really sexy voice, but like but taunting him. But the way that she's this there's this very artificial looking blue light in the, um coming through the bathroom in this sequence, but um it in the context of the film I don't think this looks artificial, and seeing Nicole Kidman sort of framed with her red hair against the blue light while she's you know the the camera is really taking in the physical details of her performance as she reacts with this complex mix of anger and contempt and you know um mostly anger and contempt but it's really taking in the way she physically expresses that with um framing her against this blue light shining through and i just thought man this is gorgeous the the big take that i wanted to say she's is, is underutilized in the civil say which it's not her narrative yeah it's most it's not her character, it's but Tom she's, Cruise character she's great in the bits she's in yeah. but um you know it's i i think this is one of the most aesthetically perfect films i've ever seen just the way that you it's so nice to watch without being show offy it's never trying to blow your pants off because i think kubrick is just like too old and past that and <laughs> you know too and he's done that he's, he's done made that. the most luscious production set design that's right 2001 oh, barry yeah. linden clockwork orange as well here he can just kind and of relax Loves. he can just relax and just comfortably put everything in the right place but you know this but yeah it it wasn't so simple this was a year long production a, a, a director who was Ridley Scott would have filmed this in six weeks less. Yes, yeah. yeah. Kubrick, I think, was all about getting exactly the right performances from his uh, characters, and also he never used storyboards except as a tool in in pre production. He would never use them on the on the set. He would always create the um, try new things with the camera until he felt like he'd gotten exactly what he wanted. Um, and here, it it just works. It's it feels so perfect aesthetically. So really, the number one, I guess what's coming through here is that the thing I like most about this film are the aesthetics. It's just such a director's film um, because this film, I think, is really not so much about what it's about story-wise, but the way it's told. Oh, this Very much a director's film. Just spiral down to the abyss and then yeah. turning your back on hell. Can I... Can I yeah. fathom it? But it's really oh. about the feel of it, I think. Like the feel of these strange conversations and interaction he gets into as opposed to the actual narrative. Like I remember years ago, my mom was watching it on, on SBS and I was like, oh, Eyes Wide Shut. And she said, um, I disagree with this, but she said she'd come in like halfway through or, or, or you know, a third through or something. And she's like, yeah, I don't think it's a good story, but I'm really interested. But I think it is a good story. It's but a great story. I agree. It's a great story. But the way it's told is so interesting right um 
I was I said at the beginning um, of this that I think it's dreamlike, but in a very subtle way. Rewatching it in preparation for this show, I was noticing much more than I I did when I first watched it. The way that every single thing that happens is a reaction to what's on Tom Cruise's mind, like um, when you know he he cho- he hasn't had sex with a with a woman. Um, okay, he's he's feeling like he might not be. He he's just turned down the woman who um whose father has just died who out of the blue is declaring her love to him um and hilariously at the end of that sequence her husband is revealed to look identical to tom cruise with the same haircut um he had a great haircut he had a great 90s haircut yeah but um that's one of those little dreamlike it's not like a david lynch movie where it's like this is totally a dream this is really far out there um it's way more subtle, like the little things that make you go, "Hang on!" Like how, um, you know, the at the her husband being a Tom Cruise clone, or the the two ladies who say they could be found over the rainbow, and then you see it find the under the rainbow costume store. Um, yeah, just this decloaking, this demystification. Yeah. You go out at night and have this idea of there's this grand wonder beyond, but it's kind of like um, American Graffiti where you wander through and you find Den and, oh, it's just some machine. It's just some... Yeah. Um, we, we, and, and we see him go to um, an extreme. We see him go to this pit of um, what, where people are just lusting after each other. And, you know, there are these... And, and people assume that these sorts of things happen. Or he's stumbled upon one. Yeah, and, yeah. And once it's he's that, done it and seen it, it's, oh, like, the, that's not what I want. Yeah, it's the parano... It's... um. It, I love the the paranoid angle of there are these secret people who can control everything, who know everything that you're doing, who are operating behind the scenes. But I think a lot of people um, have responded way too literally to this film and gone, okay, this is a movie about you know MK Ultra and mind control and the the Illuminati and such. Kubrick for sure is in, influenced by those ideas, but I think the way that it's really operating is much more again about this dreamlike aspect where everything is a manifestation of his his fears like that that really i think the whole paranoid aspect reflects the guilt coming in like have i actually crossed too far have i um does everyone know that i'm cheating on my wife you know the part that you know metaphorically or the emotionally or in his mind you know the password for that for that party is fidelio it's all about fidelity and have I have I gone too far? Is the marriage doomed? Um, one of the my favorite of those dreamlike aspects I was talking about is after he's he's turned down sex with the woman who uh, or love whatever with the woman who mysteriously is totally into him. So then, before choosing to go and see the prostitute, um, he's set upon by a group of college boys who are you know homophobically insulting him. So it's like, oh, I, I am I not a man? Do I need to assert my manliness? There's so much richness to this movie thematically. Like, do we? There, there isn't a scene that ties for me. I agree. Um, is the the secret society also some kind of comment on the commodification of women? Like that it, that that is being you know the well the whole film is there's that the sequence whole film is, and yeah. at, the, at the beginning where I've said I didn't like the staging of the sequence but the dialogue is excellent where he said where it says um why do why do you believe that I wouldn't cheat on you he says Alice I think the character's name was Alice yeah, Alice, Alice because you're my wife that was and a you're good, the mother of my child that's a good and Tom we're in this impression union and <laughs> we're that's together his, those those are his vocal patterns yeah, yeah it's, it's like Alice. I think you've smoked a little too much pot. Yeah. <laughs> I am your husband. You're getting aggressive. And I've got to go to Sydney <laughs> he was, he's, to he's, be Ethan Hunt. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, it it's like there's this patriarchal society where women, uh, you know, have to be naked and and their you know their faces don't matter. They're in masks. Everyone's in masks, but the women specifically have to be naked. Or the men get the, to wear clothes. The first clothes. female character we get to know is unconscious, naked, and sprawled on a couch. We do meet the Hawkin character early. We don't get really insight into her until later. I feel. I think the scene with her at the party talking to the hung- Hungarian guy is. Uh, is is giving you a bit of insight, okay, a little bit. But um, we, we learn a but, lot more as the film progresses. Yeah, and then of course there's the the scene um, where it seems like the party store, sorry, the um, costume store guy is pimping out his daughter. Mm. Um, What's the name of the actor? He's in a lot. Yeah, I've I've forgotten his oh, name, but I do think the film is getting at this idea of he's seeing the underbelly, like he 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 follows the, his, this impulse of I need to be a man I need to sleep around um, I you know be unfaithful to my wife it, it goes back to the idea that a lot of um, Kubrick movies go to which I think is uh, people's like culture and the, their better instincts versus their base instincts like the idea that beneath I, Kubrick, a lot of Kubrick movies have a parody of high culture, even 2001. When Barry Lyndon, Barry Lyndon, definitely. But in 2000, yeah, a little bit. I think at it, the end. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's like he likes it, it, it's elitist culture and clockwork, and same with Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, um, even in 2001, I I noticed rewatching that it had that uh, recently that it has that aspect earlier on when um, the guys are talking before the moon mission and the way they talk is so refined that the conversation sounds kind of hilarious, like it's just they're so cultured. And, oh, but it's, and, it's but more like, like I but can beat you comes, in chess, Hal. Therefore, I'm superior. Yeah, but before, mm. right? But bef- before the Hal thing, that there's just a bunch of people who have the most high class English accents and the most refined way of speaking, and it comes not that long after we've just been watching apes clubbing each other. And I don't think it's a coincidence. Yeah, I was called out today for calling scones scones. So right. to anyone, but fair point. But yeah, Eyes Wide Shut is basically like high society versus we're human and we just have to go out and fuck. And I think this is quite literally said. Yeah, at, at the very end, um, and and also, but here also the level of like, we we have things to control us to help us emotionally and to help things go smoother, like institutions of marriage and fidelity and you know monogamy and can that survive versus maybe like some kind of primitive impulse, but also the aspect of um, you know he has that impulse about sex, and I think and he follows it. And it takes him to, I guess, seeing the underbelly that maybe a lot of these ideas are, are culture. That you know, maybe there are force, there are dark forces beyond what we can fathom that are perpetuating this idea that women are just meat that men have to go out and have sex with, you know, and forget everything else. It's it's super rich thematically. I was I was just there's so much you can go and you can. So many ways you can read the film. The it's really funny in in an understated way. There are so many absurd situations that Tom Cruise gets himself into. I think it takes a little bit of time to like get onto the wavelength that this is funny. Just the costume store, the costumes... him getting locked into the glass cage, yeah. is so visually funny. In yeah. fact, the sequence once you've got over the shock in the giant mansion sequence of seeing. Um, everyone in these get-ups, and he's just wandering through nonchalantly, seeing people it is in these funny. orgies. It, it, you go from the shock to, 
oh, this is outrageous. Yeah. Um, can you imagine finding yourself here just having to, like, where, uh, can I, where's the bathroom? Can I use the bathroom? Yeah, uh, where, yeah, where yeah. Can I go for a smoke? Uh, all, all yeah. Right, then? Like, all the, all the, con- uh, I think the movie's at its best in capturing these weird little interactions between people. Like the, um, I mentioned the woman whose wife looks identical to Tom Cruise or the, uh, yeah, the costume store guy or the gay hotel guide. It just always has this sense of like reality is not quite right where um, everyone is, it, it's it's outrageous how everyone wants to have sex with Tom Cruise or or they hate him for not doing it. Um, <laughs> like yeah. he, or, or offering sex to him. Look, you come at any time. We made an arrangement. Yeah. It's all, it's all fine, Tom. And it's always manifesting something that's been on his subconscious in just the preceding scenes. I do think that the movie loses a bit of steam um, after the orgy scene. I think up until that moment, it's been really intriguing. And oh, I, think no, I loved when he go back to the mansion. He just slips the note. Through I love. The I love that scene too. Um, I think. I think the. I. I think there's lots of great scenes after that. I just feel like the editing maybe isn't so tight. But I wonder how much of this is down to the fact that Kubrick died. We and don't know. We, we just can't know. He's such a perfectionist that there's no way that he wouldn't have kept editing this film. Or would film. have done reshoots or this or that. Yeah, reshoots might have been problematic, but... But he, he, at the very least, I think, would have continued to edit it for the next three or four months. Yeah. So, you know, it may have been a lot tighter. And do I wonder... Remember, do you remember how anticipated this was at the time? Because he passed away in something Kubrick's last film yeah. with the biggest stars in the world. But it and the it was also it was a super secretive production and the marketing campaign was very secretive as per Kubrick's yeah. desire. Although but, you, you can sell a film, Tom Cruise and the Hawkins and Stanley Kubrick. Yep, yeah, there. but in in that atmosphere um, with the tabloids running riot, it created I think very much false expectations for this film. That um, it was reported that it was going to be one of the most like explicit films of all time. Was it just? Super sexy, erotically charged thing, and it's actually no. Uh, the the, sequ- the, sequ- the orgy sequences are very stylized. They're yeah, hyper stylized. That's right. It's it's and not. And no, it's not a movie that's trying Im- to turn you on. It's also impersonal because we don't actually see anyone's faces. It, it's just bodies. Yeah, writhing in the background on tables, which fits with that theme of commodification of of people for this for, for the sake of sex. But um, I think people expected something like Basic Instinct. And Kubrick was never going to deliver anything like that. It's it's a 70s-ish arthouse movie. Um, I think Kubrick actually, I read, wanted it to look a bit like a 70s film, which maybe adds to the, the timelessness of it. Like the film stock has this really grainy, warm look to it, which look is what 70s movies like. It's not what a new movie looked like in 1999. So seeing that's something that we miss out on on video, but apparently on the big screen in 1999, it really hit you like, oh, wow. I'd love this, to have seen I, this. I wish I could catch a... a film print of this I don't know whether I, I think it did screen once in the past few years I don't know where no the Kubrick Festival and they screened every Kubrick film with the Ritz a little while ago right but I, I don't think this one was on film I'd like to see it on film just to see oh. the way Kubrick wanted it to look which it apparently was he was super specific about the film stock mm. that it would be filmed on and I that's just something we miss out on on video but you know um, Eyes Wide Shut is great I, I think, think you should go see it and yeah. see it again if you haven't caught it in yeah um, sometime in the past recently in the past twenty years yeah and I think times times been um, times been kind to it because I think um, one we're away from those expectations that this is going to be this super hot erotic thriller it's not a thriller it's a mystery but not a thriller I would say some aspects of it are thriller like but a lot of it is more it's too low key for me to really call it a thriller what would you say to that 
I would say it is. I actually think it's a drama. It follows the beats it's a of drama. a drama. Yeah. Um, and just because there is a hazy, not entirely clear, non uh, non straightforward mode of storytelling, doesn't mean it's not paced traditional drama. Person has a crisis, or he perceives to be a crisis in his marriage, goes off um, to explore the night in New York. We've seen that sort of plot before. Yeah. It's in very standard drama and it, it also goes into fantasy territory yeah. there's nothing fantastical it, about it, it yeah per se or directly but it's that dreamlike aspect and the way it pulls the rug out from under you from going from situations we could all end up in to suddenly there's this strange ritual happening yeah so with it's, it's a chanting fever dream i mean the thing is if this film was made were made today a lot of directors or screenwriters would have just said here take a lot of you know drugs and then people can interpret whether this is your high pitched fever dream or just actually you going through life um kubrick takes that sometimes everyone out of it he's everything that's happening he, is happening he's way too subtle for that yeah um i think i think i think the film is a dream but it's not the kind of i don't think it's a dream well the the thing here's what i mean when i say it's a dream um i don't think that it is literally a dream, but I think it's modeled on the way that dreams work, manifestations of the unconscious. But Kubrick knows that you don't have to say it's a dream. You know, when when you're watching something that's kind of dreamlike, you can just structure the film that way. But I I believe in the reality of the film, everything happens. I don't believe this is, you know, anything literally like this is the dream of a character. No, it's it's the amazing thing. Everyone's had the experience where they're out somewhere having a great time or whatever, or they have an idealized image of a place and then go back there, whether it be in the light or in a non-hectic environment and just see that, oh, it's just a regular place, just a regular house, a regular thing. And sometimes those places still hold that special meaning. Yeah. But that put it into very made it very starkly clear as did clockwork 20 28 years before 20, 28, 28 years, years yeah yeah but the other reason why i think it um has held up well and will continue to be evaluated as a really strong film um i said before that i don't like the way that a lot of people uh interpret this film very literally in terms of the secret society stuff about oh this is the movie about the forces behind the scenes who actually control everything but i think that kind of paranoia is in I think um, peop- it's it's almost like we've gone back to the 60s, 70s mentality of like massive distrust of governments and organizations and the belief that something dark is happening behind the scenes. I think that that kind of feeling is probably at an all-time high right now, and Eyes Wide Shut really speaks to that. And you should seek it out. It is available in many places, as is uh, all of Kubrick's filmography. Yeah, not not too hard to find nowadays. It was streaming on Netflix not that long ago, but I think it's gone at the moment. But, you know, um, it'll be back. It'll have a long shelf life. Film scholars will always be interested in Kubrick films, and for good reason. There's there's no one like him. And there have been a lot of imitators. Many, yeah. Even even this year, I've, we've seen a lot of Kubrick esque films. Especially The Shining continues to have the a Shining long oh, shelf it's, life. It's just too much. It's too much reverence. I mean, Stephen King has had a resurgence in one respect. No, he never. He's yeah. probably never, never went away. But this this The Shining, whether it be Doctor Sleep or other versions thereof. We mentioned Crimson Peak earlier. The high point of this is still probably the best Simpsons Halloween episode, The Shining. <laughs> the Shining, right. The Shining. I think The Shining's really, really good. Um, but I've noticed that it's become the template for horror that is in at the moment. If you look at um, Ariaster's films, Hereditary and Midsummer, and also um, The Killing of a Sacred Deer by Yorgos Lanthimos, 
sort of horror, the way that they're structured um, visually and the, the way that music cues are used um, is very, very strongly The Shining. I think that the aesthetic that he thought of for that film was just so brilliant and so good for horror. That Ready Player One, I don't know another perspective. Oh, God. The way yeah. that Ready Player One used it... It was not good. It was... Was insulting, I think, to Kubrick. And I don't think Spielberg meant that. I think he meant it as a great tribute, but... Uh, it's a bit to, queasy. To envelop and change. And I know they use the original prints, and only people can access, get access to that. But to then say, here are these extra shots, and here are this, but this to, fans, to turn it into fan service. Yeah, for it. to turn it into a CG thing about people, you know, video game characters who quip and are voiced by people like what, what's the Deadpool guy? Uh, oh, uh, what's from Silicon Valley? Uh, uh yeah, that T- guy. Buckman, Eric Buckman, T- TJ, TJ Miller, Miller. T. yeah, 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 like that, like that sort of thing. Um, to turn The Shining into the setting for a roller coaster ride, and it's it just, just feels like, wrong. And it feels, and you want The Shining? It's so much more dense. It's not just the fact that there's this window that couldn't exist, or there's all these minor references. Uh, but the visual style, whether it be the flashes between errors, um, the epic so quick brilliant. pan as Jack Torrance is swinging the axe against, yeah, against yeah, the yeah, door. Yeah. The way the camera's following the axe. Oh, Because so. we are, it's brilliant. We are afraid of the axe and what it could do, so keep keep the tension yeah. by focusing on the axe with the camera yeah. movement. The alienation brilliant. in the maze as Shelley Duvall crawls out the window. Um, this, the, the very, again, I'm going to use the nonchalant sequence where Jack Torrance walks up and suddenly it's a thriving bar. And you know, The Shining, like Eyes Wide Shut, it's one of those films where it's not like ha-ha funny, but on a conceptual level, once you see the... What, it's Jack Nicholson with that glare that yeah. he never matched in any other film, just the intensity of it. Whether it be him saying, you know, give me the weapon, whether it be him as the door swings open, whether it be him as he's just slowly typing away, yeah. he's so maniacal, but not in the erotic sense, but, but he's still nonetheless just so exaggerated for what a normal person would be. funny. It's funny. And the thing is, this kind of feeling pops up in so many Kubrick films that I think... Yeah, it is meant to be funny. Again, like not ha-ha funny, but on a conceptual level, once you see what he's doing in terms of the contrasts, because it's it's always about wild contrasts, like um, putting stuffy Tom Cruise in, in a suit in, next to this weird, you know, Eastern European guy who's yelling at dudes in wigs <laughs> who are hiding yeah. in the, behind clothes. It's about these strange situations where it's like, hang on, this is funny. And The Shining... Um, seeing um, his terrified wife and child in a sick way is funny to see them being terrified by this like cartoon character <laughs> maniacal like, Jack Torrance. So you went away with Jack Nicholson to this retreat and you thought that would go well. Yeah. The, oh. the moment in that movie where it cuts from at some point uh, Wendy and Danny outside to just suddenly Jack Nicholson's face hanging open in this look of contempt and this bah! Sound on yeah. the soundtrack is like, hilarious. You, you, you mean that where he's frozen? Not that moment. That was also very funny. That you're right. That yeah. was his face is so dumb. It's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. But that moment, the the you know, um, there's a moment earlier in the film <laughs> similar to that. His face is basically frozen in place with some open mouth look of, of hatred. It it's funny. <laughs> it's it's funny. It is. Yeah. And, and just, I, I mean, I mentioned earlier with the Simpsons parody. Oh dear! It envelops on what is hilarious about it and what is exaggerated and over the top about it. Yeah, but as if every line of the episode was a yeah. joke. What what Kubrick films do you think aren't funny? I think um, The Shining is less fun. Sorry, not Shining. Shining is funny. I think Full Metal Jacket 
there, definitely not, there's humor in the first half, but I don't think it's meant to be funny in the same way as, I say, Shining Eyes Wet no. Shut. Barry Lyndon has humor, certainly in the opening sequence, Barry which Lyndon, is quite good. Bar- or even the whole first half of Barry Lyndon, I would say, is very strongly comedic. A uh, Clockwork certainly has hu- humorous elements. It does, yeah. Um, 2001, not, not really, so much. no. There's maybe um, a few things in 2001 that could be interpreted as humorous. Strange Love has one of my favorite comedy sequences of all time, which is when he's scrambling Do- for the coins yeah. in the phone box. Doctor Strange Love is definitely. Lolita, definitely. Lolita, yes. Lolita is not. I don't think Lolita is a good film. I haven't um, seen it in too long to comment. My taste has definitely shifted since I last watched Peter it. Peter Sellers so. is badly utilized. He's the, Kubrick came along and said, oh, wait, there's this incredibly talented actor. Let's deploy him. And C- Peter Sellers is playing to the gallery of so many other types of films. Look at all things they could do. It was his audition for many better films which came out in subsequent years, including Pink Panther and Strange Love. Spartacus has a few funny moments, but it is predominantly an action film. Paths of Glory is not funny. I was going to say that. Killer's not- Kiss has incidental, a few incidentally funny moments. Sorry, I mean I the killers. Sorry, most, the killers. Most of his films, I think, feature some comedic aspect. Whether it, it's um, it's probably just a, a yeah. few that don't. It's just usually it's it's quite buried. It's more conceptually funny. Yeah. Um, the opening to two thousand and one, just the ape suits were quite had had some funny moments. Um, yeah, you're right. Actually, a, 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 as soon as Hal stuck him in the pod, it, it was it got very sinister very quickly. But it was like, oh shit, I'm being toyed with the computer. Oh wait, no, this is really really serious. There was a moment of humor at the very beginning yeah. before it got to over the top. But then the film is going for this really grand, sincere oeuvre, and then it just stops being funny at all. Yeah. Um, clockwork. The sequence where Alex is banging his, I said, uh, banging his head, um, because the peace activists want to torture him. <laughs> it's brilliant. It's yeah. so good. Um, yeah. the sequence where he's uh, reaching for, uh, uh, where like he's he's reaching for the window. The sequence where he's being tortured successfully by seeing the naked woman having the guy punch him. And there's one other thing in the demonstration where, uh, which that whole sequence again, very funny. Yeah. Um, yeah, you, you you have to just sort of be on board with a, a, a slightly sick mentality. Yeah. I think Kubrick was a grand cynic. Yeah. but The uh, only out-and-out comedy ever made was Strange Love. Yeah. Which was very dark by comedic standards. So Lolita features probably quite a lot of comedy, I would say. Uh, it, look, it's been a long time since I've seen it. It's, so it's maybe been intended light to, you know... Basically, make it a film that he that he he wanted the, he and the studio wanted it to be accessible. Given the subject matter, it made it very hard. Mm. And the book isn't funny. Yeah, the book is not funny at all. But I think he wanted to make the, I think he wanted to make the film accessible. I think I, so. I haven't seen the other the other version adaptation of Lolita. Was it this Adrian Lin one. who directed it? I think so from 1997. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I've always been curious about that film, but I I get it doesn't seem to be that well remembered. So I'm guessing that it's another kind of failed literary adaptation. No, I like the book and but yeah, the book is the book is great. All we've said about it, James Mason is very good in everything. Yes, so definitely he was he was good in that. Um, oh yeah, Kubrick. We've gone through. I wish I could talk about Killer's Kiss. I remember watching it. Nearly twenty years ago, I, I can't well, say t- I, I couldn't really tell you. T- I I, can't, I don't remember it really much at all. I remember liking it, but I couldn't really tell you what it was about. That's my hot take on Killer's Kiss. <laughs> very very um, piping hot. I'm not a Full Metal Jacket fan. I don't mind aspects of the first half. The second half, I don't really like at e- all. Everyone I talk to these days doesn't like Full Metal Jacket, but for me, it still really works. I really like the second half as well. Um, the first half is just so memorable and distinctive that I, I think it's hard to top that. That's always the problem with. Um, making a, a film of two halves mm. there's the risk that if you try to create distinction that one part is going to significantly overshadow the other but um for me for me it worked i found yeah. that the final sequence with the sniper to be really 
Um, I like the reveal. And if you if you're fast, really powerful, yeah. And you're fascinated by Kubrick. Um, he was people referred to him as a recluse. I think that's unfair. He was a private individual. Yeah. Um, he kept amazing catalogs and amazing research for his films. He researched. He wanted to make a film about Napoleon and did the research for months yes. and months and months, but it never eventuated. Yeah, he wrote a uh, apparently like pretty finished screenplay. Um, he was. We're missing really good films about Napoleon. Yeah, I think I think Napoleon could have been could have been fantastic, but apparently he used a lot of the research for that in Barry Lyndon. Um, Kubrick also is well known for one of the most famous selfies of all time. A photo he took himself in front of the mirror. He also did a lot of photography for Life, which his, is how he his, got his start. His photographs for Life are amazing. Have you seen them? They're, they're just yeah, they're gorgeous. Just so beautiful. But like, um, yeah, it's not candid street photography. It's definitely proto Stanley Kubrick because it's. I think being meticulously staged. He's a director. Did you ever see Color Me Kubrick, the John Malkovich film? I didn't, but the story behind it is really funny. Yeah, so this is about Kubrick was not someone who was very public, did a lot of interviews. So not a lot of people around the time of his life knew what he looked like. Yeah, he didn't so, go out saying, hey, you know, he didn't like to do press for his movies. He he basically um, could go out in public without people knowing. Kind of like Terrence Malick today. There's Terrence Kind of like Terrence Malick, exactly. And, there you go. Um, so Kubrick... It's based on the story of a person who reportedly went out and said, I'm Stanley Kubrick and got into all these film parties and because didn't actually you know that much about his movies. Like he mentioned that he directed Judgment at Nuremberg. Obviously Kubrick did not oh, direct Judgment at Nuremberg. There's a very awkward scene to that effect. Wow. But the, the film is okay. There's a lot of great scenes where they riff off Kubrick's visual style, including one where he's thrown into a, a body of water a la the Clockwork Orange sequence, which was really good. Right. A little too much of the um, 2001 music to just, you know, punctuate the movie. But otherwise, it was a decent movie. Okay. I think it's just so shameless that you don't think that someone would do that. Like, if someone came up to you around in England around the time Eyes Wide Shut was being filmed and said, yeah, I'm Stanley Kubrick, would you doubt them showing up at some high society party? Well, you'd probably believe it because you don't have Google and Com and yeah. they have a decent knowledge of... You don't, you don't want to, you don't want to be the guy who said yeah right exactly yeah yeah so he got away with it for a long time <laughs> right well yeah um you, you couldn't do it today no. no but continuing and our trend for this episode of things that were of their time things of the time oh I feel and like things that. that are timeless like eyes wide shut and go see film worker yeah yeah, yeah. leon vitali's from story last year's at the film festival yeah leon vitali's story is pretty incredible yeah okay. kubrick inspired that kind of devotion did did Kubrick oh just someone who knew exactly what he wanted and had a massive drive I think usually not to that extent but clearly will people will rally around that kind of charisma and that kind of vision as the fact that he was able to get actors to stay with him on a year-long yeah. um shoot shows and go watch Paths of Glory probably his first big breakout here I mean the killers had some popularity but Paths Glory was oh this is a serious director probably his first capital G great film yeah and then Spartacus was his first big studio number I don't especially like Spartacus we don't know to this day how much of it was studio intervention Tony Curtis's accent that was very distracting Kirk Douglas was good I think it's it, I think it was a payday you know he came in to replace the director at yeah. Kirk Douglas's request while Kirk Douglas maintained creative control and the studio had a lot of control I think it was a payday to finance his own projects yeah, went from that to the leader. Yeah. Um, obviously, Strange Love is. I, I know Strange Love is a great film. I do think it is somewhat overrated. 
I think so too. Yeah, um, the, the, don't a lot, shoot a lot us. Of humor doesn't yeah, land no, as well. I think and, a lot of the humor is dated, but I, I do think it's a great film still. And every like the whole thing with the strange love being a Nazi, it doesn't land as well as no. Kubrick wants it to. Oh, it probably stop. landed better when World War Two was twenty years ago. Yeah, than it does now. And the whole thing with the cowboy, Peter Sellers wanted to do it, but he couldn't nail the accent, so they gave it to um someone else. Yeah. And the Simpsons parody that is actually much funnier. Well, like do not ride. Well, Homer like gets the hat and goes oh, right. down, but. Uh, that was not especially good. the The war room line is is very funny. Every sequence where he's trying to like stave off disaster, uh, with especially with the phone book character early, is good. I, I, the thing about Strange Doctor Strange Love is it's actually really tense. Yeah, I think it's quite suspenseful. Yeah. Till we meet again, and look, 2001's a masterpiece. Clockwork we've spoken about. Barry Lyndon is underrated. I think Barry Lyndon is a masterpiece, personally. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would revise. Actually, I'd say I should revise my earlier ranking. Barry Lyndon is better than is better than Strange Love. Uh, we talked Shining, Full Metal Jacket, obviously, and Eyes Wide Shut. He made a Eyes Wide Shut's one of, his, one of his best films, I think. Yeah. I'd say, for me, it goes Clockwork 2001, Barry Lyndon, Eyes Wide Shut, Paths of Glory, Shining, and then uh, Strange Love. Right. Then I'd go... Uh, ooh. I'd say Full Metal Jacket over Spartacus, then Spartacus... So then Killer, then the Killers, then Spartacus, then Lolita. I haven't seen Killers Kiss in a while. I'm prepared to watch it and rank it in that style. You know, and, I haven't and, thought yeah. about this enough, nor um, seen some of these recently enough, um, and a few of them at all, to do the complete ranking. But, um, man, we film people just love to do lists, don't we? We do. We have to do our end of year That's or what, 2019. In 2020, we'll do it. Would you like to... Uh, I think, yeah, we, we should catch up on a few, couple of films... And yeah. then early in 2020, we'll give you our best of the year. But how do you feel about also doing a best of the decade? Everyone else is doing it. Yeah, um, I'd be up for it. Yeah, let's give it a go. I'd be, I'd be up for a best of the decade. And not, it's not, it's not going to be one each year, because there's a lot of good stuff in 2019. Like, some of my films feasibly, uh, proportion will come from 2019. Yeah. It's been a good year for cinema. It has. Um, I referred to the Social Network as the defining film of the decade earlier. It's not going to make my top 10. I really like it. I've yeah, me too. But I think that idea that it's a defining film is probably pretty accurate. It was It was a little... It wasn't premature. It was at a no. time when Facebook, even then, had not become what it would be. Yeah. yeah. I rewatched a couple of the sequences today. Um, the deposition sequences... Um, Aaron Sorkin cut his teeth on this during some of the great deposition sequences during seasons one and three of The West Wing, mm. and he ho- really honed the craft for those later on. Every sequence of Rooney Mara is great, and uh, we introduced Army Hammer and Andrew he Garfield to a wider audience. A lot of great actors doing yeah. great work. And Timberlake, the whole scene, watch the cut of how many laptops Andrew Garf- David Fincher got Andrew Garfield to wreck for that perfect shot when he confronts Smocks, when... Uh, Eduardo Severin confronts Mark Zuckerberg. Right, but, right. Well, I will. Yeah, Dave, I, another David Fincher movie. I guess that about wraps it up. It does. Have a wonderful night whenever you're listening. We'll be back in coming weeks talking. I've got Little Woman, Star, Star Wars, Wars Cats. Cats. Cats is in two weeks. Uh, we might have to dedicate a lot of that episode. So we're doing Cats. We are, and then, yeah, it's out on Boxing Day, but we'll give you a bit of a preview in advance, I think. Dear me. I'm... Oh, and also, oh, um, when you're listening to this uh, at 12.30... AM on Thursday after this has gone to air the No Time to Die trailer will be out yeah um, we're going to full James Bond mode come April 2nd feels like uh, there's 
the least hype there's been for a James Bond movie since the Craig era started. Well, the thing is, there's been a four-year gap. It's a longer gap than between yeah. um, Craig. It, it, it's the same. It's a longer gap than between Brosnan to Craig and longer than between Quantum to Skyfall, which and was all due to studio disruption. People just didn't like Spectre as well. That, I liked Spectre. I'm, I'll defend Spectre. In general, it, it um, was received badly, I think, so that just puts a dampener on the hype. So it also it feels like they're... It's very soon. You know, the movie's out in April and we're only just getting a trailer in December. But James Bond needs, you know, to be regular. It used to be once every, one every year. Then it, every two years is fine. I liked that. I, I wasn't a big fan of Quantum compared to the others, but I liked that it came out two years after the fact. But you know what? It's not just that. It's fatigue. I like Craig. He's possibly my favorite. Actually, no, he is my favorite. I He's think my Craig favorite did a great, does a great job of James Bond. It's but just that... He's been there longer. It's his. It's the longest tenure. I was in high school yeah. when Craig started. Yeah. Uh, and he's been there for 13 years. Con- uh, Moore did 12. Connery did nine, to put it in perspective. And but Craig again, has you know, changed. That's true. He has. He's, and, he's, and he's about, aged. And not too much in terms of even looks. Like when he started, he was the you know, young up-and-comer. And same with same thing with Quantum. But then as soon as Skyfall hit, yes, he did visibly age between the films. But it was suddenly old dog. Suddenly, no, you can't just go from upstart to absolute veteran and tired of the game yeah they he's missed this whole reboots were in and after um people hated die another day it seems and you know in order to breathe new life into the franchise they decided to play the reboot game but the very next film skyfall oh, sorry that wasn't the very next film but that's a couple of films later and then suddenly it's the whole thing is a wink about how bond is this veteran character and a veteran series and like it took all of two films to go from where it's rebooting and starting James Bond again to <clears throat> this is just another Bond. But you know what? It's okay to just be another Bond. It's fine. You know, Spectre was the most traditional Bond film of all of them, even though Reboots MI6 are... hung in the balance. But I just want a yeah. Bond to go on a mission, Reboots meet are... some cool people, yeah, exactly. kill some bad guys. The thing about James Bond is, and I think they realized this after making Casino Royale, it shouldn't really be tied to cont- continuity. No. The more that it's, it's a template that features a few familiar elements and gives room to play with fun things. Chases, gadgets, bo- you know, beautiful people. Yeah. And there are, and there are references in this one to apparently Felix Leiter plays a big part in the film and in a negative way, kind of like so I'm getting license to kill vibes and that's okay. Oh, he's the villain now. No, no, he's not I think he was quite badly injured in license to kill. So Oh no, maybe I mean, Felix Felix is the villain? Oh, I don't think so. I oh, think Robbie okay, Malik's right. the villain. Yeah, I was, yeah, I did too. I was I, when you said he pre- plays a big role in a negative way. I was like, oh, oh no, as in uh, something bad happened to him, license to kill. So therefore, Bond went on the revenge mission. Is that and what this is? I got the impression from I, I'm trying to avoid as much coverage as I can, but what right. I did see, he pl- he something happens and Bond has to come out of retirement. Why is Bond why in is retirement? Bond always in retirement or like it, it's like yeah. look every in every film look in what is not enough he um you know uh, M got captured. It's on the day, MI6 hanging the balance to the extent. Casino, Casino Royale was fine, but then... In Sky, in Skyfall, Quantum of Solace, he's going rogue. Yep. In Skyfall, he goes, he goes rogue, rogue and, and M this, gets captured. And Spectre, he goes rogue. And, Spe- and, and M gets captured. Yeah. To give you context, here are the films <laughs> prior to this that he went rogue. On Managed Secret Service and License to Kill. That's it. Th- and in Diamonds of Forever, he went a little bit angry after his yep. wife died and... Uh, you know, uh, but otherwise, he was still acting on a Majesty's Secret Service. I think it's a couple of things. But not a little bit. He went very angry. Did some terrible things. I think it's that in this current age, where everyone distrusts their government, they feel like it's not cool 
um, for an action hero to be doing things in service of government. He needs to be a, a, a lone hero who's in it for himself. And it also makes the movie less subtly political so that you can sell it to China. Why can't he's he just... He's just out to stop bad guys, which is what it's always been. Queen and Why can't he just go Why on can't he just be for Queen and Country? And yeah. Anna de Armas is in this. She's great. I'm, I, I want to see them again after Knives Out, um, them together on screen. Just meet up a couple of some glamorous people... Meet a bad guy, have some action sequences, have some cool gadgets, save the day. I think that's all it needs. I, I agree, but I think the other reason beyond distrust of governments is the films that have come out of the distrust of governments, especially Born. Post Born, they feel like, all right, well that's no, changed. Quantum just felt like Born. It did. It's like post Born, they feel like the game's changed. It has to be all about a guy going rogue. You know, like a, a spy doing missions isn't cool anymore, but. At this point, it's so tired. There's so little imagination in the the stories they're going for with Bond these days. It's it's pretty sad. And the whole arc of him, you know, still being for being so loyal, ended with the end of Skyfall because the person he was so close to passed away. And he does have that similar respect for the Ray Fiennes character, the Ray Fiennes M. Yeah. But it needs to look. It doesn't need. To, people are saying, you know, this one's different. It actually doesn't need to be different. No. We get a Bond film every few years. We know what point, it is. At this it would be more different. It would be more refreshing for it to be just a conventional classic Bond narrative. It's like the joy a lot of Star Wars fans heard when they said they'd re-release the original cinematic version of A New Hope or Star Wars. Yeah, but they lied. They released a laser disc transfer on DVD. Yeah, it's not the same. Not the same at all. Um, hopefully, look, I, I reckon for whatever reason, we're not going to see original Star Wars until George Lucas dies. I think I think that's the way it is because Disney haven't made any noise about buying it. And they've, you, you know, the new version they've released on Disney Plus, as has now been infinitely memed about, features um, a, a new change to the hand shoots scene. Also, oh, no, where, also where three erroneously. Three shots? No, 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 it's not that. It's now before he gets shot, the alien says McClunky. And it... <laughs> that's right, McClunky. Guido. Guido, Guido says McClunky. Yeah. Well, I don't know what that means. Yeah, because there's no subtitles. Like the rest of the. Like it's so slap shot, slapdash. Everything else that Guido said had subtitles, but then, you, you know, we've just added something because God. George thought it would be funnier. Yeah. You know, Alderon shot first, too. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. Alderaan shot first. Did they? Uh, there was definitely a shot coming from Alderaan towards the Death Star before the Death Star obliterated Alderaan. I think that's just a special effects goof. <laughs> no, I'm just... <laughs> oh, right. I'm, 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 I'm You're just, just George being, Lucas. I, I'm being belligerent. And, right. Uh, you know, I rewatched The Last Jedi this morning. I can't wait to talk about it. We'll get to that. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. It's. I like it more each time I see it. Sorry I, if that's going to rally. Because, I, I mean... It's, it's a good it's movie, a good guys. Movie. I've been chatting to people the past few weeks who have just been saying, not even Star Wars fans per se, just saying they don't like it as a film, but I had to go back and watch it because it's been, what, 18 it's months? It's a good movie. It. It's, in, in this, I would say that in this franchise era of um, big action movies, usually released by Disney, it's one of the best, if not the best. And the comedy, with the exception of Hux being thrown around, which was annoying, was incidental to the action. It was natural flowing. Yeah. There were no one, cool one-liners, except for the Chrome Dome line from Finn, which yeah. was really annoying. We're going to we're going to get way more into Star Wars in a couple of in a couple of weeks. But uh, you know, I, you reckon that's it? I reckon that's it. Have a good night, everyone. Oh, 